Morning, church. My name is Kelsey, and the Bible reading is taken from Matthew 6, verse 1 to 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kelsey. Um, We come now to God's word. Won't you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we have come to listen to the King this morning. The King is speaking, and we pray that by your Spirit, you will help us to assume the right posture. Help us to fall onto the knees of our hearts in humility, and help us to raise the hands of our hearts in worship, and open the eyes of our hearts that we might see him. Open our ears that we might hear him. And Father, as we leave here a little bit later on, we pray that we would leave here following him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So in the passage that Kelsey read for us, Jesus begins with the punchline. And so should we. Chapter 6, verse 1. Please have chapter 6 open. It'll be really helpful. Chapter 6, verse 1. Here's the punchline. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There it is. What Jesus means by righteousness here is what uh, we would normally consider religious activity. And he gives us three examples, giving to the poor, fasting, and prayer. 
three common religious activities, three things religious people are often involved in, charity, fasting, prayer. In fact, uh, those three, charity, fasting, prayer, are three out of the five pillars of Islam. So very common religious activities. And Jesus expects his disciples to participate in those activities. What he's saying to his first disciples and to us here this morning, what he's saying is that it matters profoundly how you do them and why you do them. He's going to show his disciples, those in his day, us here this morning, that there is a night and day difference, a binary difference between religion and life in the kingdom. Two different things, two different planets, religion and life in the kingdom when it comes to the how and the why of righteousness. So charity, fasting, prayer, in every case, in each case, we're going to ask, what does this practice look like in religion and what does this practice look like in the kingdom? And then as we go, we're also going to try and answer the question, the key question, what makes the difference between the two? Are you with me? Let's go. Charity, verse 2. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. That's a picture of religion when it comes to giving to the poor. Jesus calls the person who gives in this way a hypocrite. Now that word in the Greek means actor, an actor, someone who puts on a performance. Throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus compares the actor to the integer. You remember, I think it's from primary school maths, the integer, the whole number, the whole number as opposed to the fraction. It's where we get our word integrity, wholeness. Now the actor... The actor is a fraction. The actor is dividing his life between the stage and reality. The stage and backstage. Of course, the stage is about putting on a public performance, putting on a show for the public, for others. The stage for the hypocrite in Jesus' day was the street corner and the synagogue. That's about as public as it got in his culture. And religious activity on the street corner and in the synagogue was all about cutting the ribbon, standing for the photograph with the big check, naming the public library after yourself. The hypocrites in his day would make a very public show of love for God in their charity, in their giving. But in truth, and this is where Jesus is putting his finger, in truth they were divided. They were actors, fractions. In truth, they weren't after the favor of God. They were after the favor of men. The opinions of others, as David put it for us two weeks ago, that's what they coveted. They wanted a favorable opinion in the eyes of others. And Jesus says, even though this religious act is supposed to be an act of devotion to God, if what you want, what you really want in your heart of hearts is the praise of men, then that's what you get. 
And that's all you get. That is your reward in full. Before we rush to judge the hypocrites, we have to be honest with ourselves. Isn't that true of us? Isn't that what we all want to a greater and lesser extent? We want praise. We want to be noticed. We want reassurance from others that we matter, that we count for something, that we are worthwhile. Isn't that one of our deepest longings? Now, what happens over time if we pursue that longing and it gets entangled in our sinful motives? What happens over time is that desire morphs into a hard hearted kind of pride where we don't just long to be noticed we start to believe that we deserve it. We've earned it. We have earned the esteem of this community. It's what we are owed. We are owed esteem in the community. Religious hypocrisy isn't far behind that kind of hard-hearted pride, is it? And it isn't very long before we begin to signal to others that we deserve their notice. We start to signal it to others. We start to tell them in subtle and not so subtle ways that we deserve their attention, their esteem. We start to tell them what it is we're doing. Sometimes we'll shout it from the rooftops. Sometimes we just let it slip. Pretty much amounts to the same thing. That's religious hypocrisy. And it's so prevalent when it comes to religious charity or giving in the world of religion. What does charity in the kingdom look like? Verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, you must be barely self-conscious when you give. It's not really even registering with you what you're doing. Now, how, how can that even possibly be true? How can we get into that sort of frame of mind? Well, what Jesus is saying is that you are so focused on your Father. All of your consciousness, all of your attention is trained on Him in the light of His glory and grace You barely remember yourself, let alone the opinions of others. That's charity. Next is fasting. This is what religious fasting looks like. Verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The actors put on a show of suffering for the Father. But that shows only a fraction of the truth. Because backstage, they are not really doing it for the favor of the Father. That's not their heart's desire. They are doing it for the favor of men, for the esteem in the community that they deserve, that we deserve. 
And that's their reward. People seeing their disfigured faces. Imagine, that's their prize. That's all they get. Now let's look at fasting in the kingdom. Verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Are you starting to see the pattern? You carry on, in the case of fasting, with your ordinary personal hygiene. You go about your ordinary business in the ordinary way, drawing no special attention to yourself because this is between you and your Father. It's true of fasting. It's true of any act of devotion. This is between you and your Father. And He knows the motivations of your heart. One way or the other, He knows because He is there in the secret places. He knows. Now we come to prayer. Uh, This one's right in the middle of the passage, but I saved it for last because it has so much to teach us on the difference between religion and life in the kingdom. And remember, that's what we're trying to understand this morning, the difference between religion and life in the kingdom and what makes that difference. Now the religious approach to prayer, there are two options basically. Right? Two options when it comes to religion and prayer. One, performance for others. Two, performance for God. Those are your religious options. We start with performance for others. The actors, here they go again, turning street corners and synagogues into a platform for public performance. Key question, why are they praying? To be seen by others. What is their reward? Exactly that. They are seen by others. Nothing more. God does not care one bit for a show that he wasn't even invited to. But in the kingdom, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's the antidote to religious prayer as a performance for man, a public show. Option two, when it comes to religion and prayer, is performance for God. It looks like this, verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. This kind of prayer is a transaction where more words equals more blessing. Or the right words equals more blessing. That's how the pagans in Jesus' day prayed. And I think that sort of practice is fairly commonplace today. The number of words, the choice of words, the order of the words are absolutely critical to the success of the prayer. If you don't say open sesame three times, the cave won't open. When we pray like that, we're treating God like an ATM. Punch in the right code and you get success. It's madness, isn't it? It's madness. As John Stott said, what sort of God is this who is chiefly impressed by the mechanics and the statistics of prayer? 
It's madness. But once again, before we judge it, we have to recognize that it may be madness, but all too often it's our madness. We think that if we just repeat things over and over and over again, either in song or in prayer, God is going to hear us. We think that if certain powerful people pray, God will hear us. We think that if we know all the theological jargon and can cross-reference our Bible verses in prayer, God will hear us. We treat God like an ATM. Not so in the kingdom. Verse 8, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. God doesn't need to be informed as if he didn't know. Oh, and Lord, by the way, this may not have come to your attention, but he's God Almighty. You don't need to input the code. He already knows what you need. Rather, verse 9, pray then like this, our Father, our Father. And this is the key. Remember I said right at the beginning that along the way we're going to try and answer the question, what makes the difference between religion and life in the kingdom? Here's the answer. The basis of kingdom prayer, kingdom giving, kingdom fasting, fasting, is that you have a Father in heaven who knows what you need. You say, hang on, preacher. Just take a breath there. You're talking about religion and you're talking about the kingdom of heaven, but I'm still stuck on the fact that God already knows what I need. If God knows what I need, why would I even bother praying? Well, let me try and answer that question. And hopefully, as I answer it, it'll also explain how this makes the difference between religion and life in the kingdom, night and day. So, I want you just to think, and there are many in this room, I want you just to think about an ordinary father with his little child. Okay, so we have a toddler, a father and his toddler. The child approaches her dad in tears. He doesn't say, stop right there. Don't say a word. I know what you need. He doesn't do that, does he? And of course he knows what's wrong. It's a toddler. They're not that complicated. But he puts the child on his knee and he says, tell me. Tell dad, what's the matter? Now why would he do that if he already knows? It's simple, isn't it? But it's, we somehow lose sight of this when it comes to God. It's so simple. He does it because he loves the child. He wants a relationship with the child. He wants the child to feel free to express her heart. And so he talks through the scraped knee or the dropped ice cream. And it isn't a chore for him, even though he already knows. He wants her to put it into her own words and to share the experience with her. It's his greatest joy to love his child. 
to spend time with his child, to walk life together with his child. That's the kingdom. That's life in the kingdom. Let me put it another way. God is not a landlord. He's not a landlord. Pay the rent, keep the place in order, and you can stay in the house. He's a father. That means you stay in the house, but not as a tenant, as a member of the family. And do you see how this flips the motive structure for keeping the place in order completely on its head? It's no longer transactional or contractual. It's relational. He's your father. It's his house. But because of his love for you, it's your house too. And because you love him, there's nothing more you want to do than to keep the place in order. Do you see now? Are you starting to see the difference between religion and life in the kingdom? The difference is you have a father who knows what you need. And he doesn't know like an algorithm knows where you're nothing but a collection of data points that gets processed and then spat out an automated response. He doesn't know like that. He knows like a father knows because he's loved you and he's watched you grow from the very beginning. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you really need. And what you really need is not always the same as what you want. Let's bear that in mind. Now think about this as it relates to prayer. No father would want their child to come and sit on his knee and say, I love you, Daddy, but only when her friend from next door is there so that the friend can see what a devoted daughter she is. No, that's religion. That's all about the opinion of others. And no father wants his child to relate to him by reading his needs off of a script. You are the best dad in the world. I need food. I need shelter. I need security. I need emotional support. No father compares to you. Repeat three times back to your room. That's religion. That's transactional prayer. We don't do that because we have a father, a real father. And he makes all the difference. That's the difference between religion and life in the kingdom. We have a father in heaven. And that makes all the difference. Not only is he perfect in love, but he's also perfect in power. Not only does he know what you really need, but he can actually do something about it. Notice what we pray to him. Our Father in heaven. Your name be honored. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Can't really see it in the English, but the accent is on the your. Your name. Your kingdom, your will. 
Now, of course, it's a, at one level, that's all already true, right? God's name is honored and glorified. His rule as king is uncontested. His will prevails perfectly. He's God Almighty. So if it's already true, what are we praying for? We are praying that the heavenly reality would break through into our earthly illusion and shatter it, blow it apart. Because heaven is more real than what's happening down here. Down here, we're all living the lie of our own independence. So we are praying in the words of C.S. Lewis for this foggy anesthetic to lift. We're praying to experience things as they truly are and to see things as they truly are. We are praying for human beings to give up their hopeless rebellion, to quit their pathetic tantrum, and to walk into the open arms of their Father who loves them. That's what we're praying for. And my brothers and sisters, it is a dangerous prayer. Do not trifle with the Lord's prayer. You know how we hum it? You just hum it through? It's a dangerous prayer. His name, His kingdom, His will, that means the end of your name, your kingdom, your will. Do you see how dangerous this prayer is? If God answers this prayer, and he does, your world, my world, is about to be turned upside down. In fact, it's going to be turned the right way up. But because we've been living our lives on our heads upside down, it's going to feel very disorienting. If you pray that prayer, expect change. Expect a revolution. If you pray it with an inkling of faith, the faith of a mustard seed, expect a revolution in your life. It, and this prayer is an enormously challenging prayer for religious people. And let's be honest, all of our hearts tend towards religion. It's enormously challenging because it actually means the end of hypocrisy. You are asking God to be at the center, which means you are no longer at the center pretending that God's at the center. He will actually be at the center when he answers this prayer. The show is over. Father, your name, your kingdom, your will. Pray this prayer at your own risk. It's dangerous. But it's also deeply comforting. Now we often notice that the first three lines of the Lord's Prayer are all about God's glory. And only then do we get to our needs. And that is a good and right thing to notice. That's a, that is a good and right um, expression of how things truly are. The rank ordering of our priorities. What we sometimes miss, right, when we say first three lines are all about God's glory and then we come to our needs. What we sometimes miss is that our biggest need, the thing we need more than anything else, is God's glory. What we need, desperately need, is for his name to be honored, his kingdom to come, his will to be done. There's nothing we need more. 
Nothing. The most important thing a child needs from her father is for her father to be her father. All of her other needs are bound up in that. That's true psychologically and it's true theologically. We see it psychologically from the untold damage that follows when a father is not a father to his child. We see it theologically from the infinitely greater damage that follows when we act as if God is not our father. We could say it positively. You see this truth in the confidence of a child whose father is loving her as a father. She will lose confidence. We see it theologically in the end of our frantic efforts to please other people when we know the love of our heavenly father. When we know the love of our heavenly father, we just don't need other people's praise in the way we used to. We can be deeply secure in his love. That's what we need. It's what our world needs. And so we are praying for God to be God in our lives. If that little child was wise beyond her years, she would walk up to her father every single day and say, please be my daddy. That's what we're praying for. We are praying for God to overrule our stupid rebellion with his love and be our heavenly father. There's nothing we need more. Nothing. And there's no greater comfort because he hears that prayer and he answers it. Next, we ask for our daily bread. We are like Israel in the wilderness and just like Israel in the wilderness, we need to learn to trust God with all of life for today. Every time we pray, give us our daily bread, we are confessing our total dependence on our Father. It follows naturally that repentance comes after faith in the prayer. Because sin is, of course, a refusal to trust God with all of life for today. Sin says, I'm not trusting you as my Father. Give me my inheritance now, I'm going to go my own way. Jesus says, Let's ask our Father to help us trust Him with all of life for today. And let's ask Him to forgive us when we don't. Because we are praying this as His children, that same forgiveness must be a mark of the whole family. How can we be the children of the Father who forgives if we don't forgive one another. That's the prayer dealing with our past sin. Next it focuses on our future sin. That which might separate us from our father tomorrow. And so we pray lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And those two go hand in hand. Because the evil one wants to trap us. Entangle us in temptation. He wants to overwhelm us with guilt. So that we turn away from the Father. That's his sole ambition in life. In his miserable life. Is to destroy us by turning us away from the love of the Father. And one way he does that is by leaving us wrecked with guilt. So we want nothing to do with our Holy Father. 
Please, Father, don't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. Don't let the devil get a foothold. Don't give him a foothold in our lives. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is a vision of the kingdom. Well, that's the prayer of the kingdom. From start to finish, it is a heart's cry to our Father in heaven who knows exactly what we need. And that's the difference. That is the difference between religion and life in the kingdom. Knowing God as your Father. So how do you know him as your father? How does that happen? How do you know God as father? Through his son. Father, your name be on it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The son honored his name. He won the kingdom. He lived perfectly according to his Father's will. In perfect loving obedience to his Father's will. The Son trusted his Father in the wilderness. The Son secured our forgiveness, paid for our sin, overcame temptation, and defeated the evil one. In every way, Jesus is the answer to the prayer that he gave his followers. I'm going to say that again. Because we don't want to lose sight of this. In every way, Jesus is the answer to the prayer that he gave his followers. That means he's the end of religion. Let's try and land this in our own lives as we close. How do you know? How do you know if you're living in the kingdom, you're actually living in the kingdom, living the kingdom life, or just playing religious games? Because it's so easy for us to be socialized into church culture, to say the right things, attend the right meetings. So how do you know? How do you know? Well, Jesus has given us the tests, hasn't he? Look at your giving, your fasting, your prayer life. Your righteousness in full. Look at it. Are you announcing it with trumpets? The social media kind? Or the let it slip kind? Is it happening on the street corners and the synagogues of your life? Be honest with yourself. Whose praise are you really after? Is there anything in your heart, any corner of your heart that wants, perhaps even demands the esteem of the community? One sure, powerful test comes to us in that awkward verse that we conveniently skipped. Do you know which one I'm talking about? The one we just sidestepped past? Verse 15. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you want to test whether you are living the kingdom life, ask yourself, how quick am I to forgive? 
If my debt is so large that it has to be repaid with the blood of Christ, if that's what it took, if that's the only way, if that's the price my father had to pay for my freedom and my brother's freedom, my sister's freedom, how can I possibly withhold forgiveness from my brother or sister? How can I be demanding repayment? That's so interesting when Jesus speaks of the, men, uh, of, the, of the praise of men as a reward in this passage. He does it a number of time, uh, times. Uh, verse 1 comes to mind, verse 16. You can have a look there. He speaks about the praise of men as a reward. The word he uses is wage. And that word is right at the heart of religion. Wage. Religious people think, act, perhaps even subconsciously, in terms of wage. What am I owed for my performance? What am I owed? The children of God think in terms of debt. What did I owe before Jesus settled all my debts? Not what am I owed. What did I owe? How much has been forgiven? What did it cost to settle my debt? How much did the father pay in the blood of his son? Not a wage, a debt. Not what am I owed, what did I owe? How are you thinking about your relationship with the Lord? Is it a wage earned? Or is it a debt forgiven? Are you a debtor? Or a creditor? Sidiso can help you sort out the difference between those two. <laughs> the sharp, sharpest cut to an answer that we have. How freely will you forgive others? If you think that you've earned your way, you're going to find it very hard to forgive others because they owe you. And you're still operating. Your operating system is the wage system. They owe you. You're going to find it very hard to forgive them. You're also going to find it very hard to ask for forgiveness and say you're sorry. Because that undermines your whole performance. The moment you say, I'm sorry I got it wrong, you've ruined the show. The show was you're an upstanding religious person. You don't get it wrong. I'm sorry I got it wrong. The whole premise of the show falls apart. Test your own heart this morning. Test your own heart. If that's you, if you struggle to forgive, and I don't think anyone in this room is excluded, particularly the guy behind the microphone, if you struggle to forgive, if you struggle to say you're sorry, if you approach God either as a wage earner or an actor, what can you do about it? Here's probably the only place to start. Here's the place to start. Try going to your room when no one else is around. Close the door and pray to your Father in heaven who knows what you need. Now, you're not in the privacy of your own room. But you can certainly pray in the privacy of your own heart, in the secret places. Bearing in mind that he is there, present by his spirit. So let's do that now. Won't you pray with me?
our Father in heaven. May your name be exalted. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Father, your Son, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, has reminded us that it's yours and not ours that needs prominence. Your name, your kingdom, your will. He's reminded us that your glory is our greatest need. Father, help us to trust you with all of life, with whatever life is bringing us at the moment. Help us to trust you with all of life for today. And Father, will you forgive us our sin? By the blood of Jesus, we plead with you, forgive us our sin. And by the same blood of Jesus, help us to forgive as freely as we've been forgiven. Father, protect us from the traps of the evil one. Keep us from temptation. Lord, please do not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. Protect us from his schemes and his plots and his traps. And we pray this. We pray this all being so clearly reminded that the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forevermore. Amen.